Welcome to The Backstory with Dr. Ricky Singh. This podcast is focused on bringing you the latest research-based information about dramatically improving health, well-being, and quality of life. And here's your host, Dr. Ricky Singh. The food we eat and changes to our diet can lead to incredible transformations in our skin, GI health, and even our energy levels. I'm a strong supporter of food is medicine, and I believe what we put into our bodies directly impacts our health and wellness. My guest today is a registered dietitian, culinary nutritionist, and a specialist in integrative and functional nutrition. And she's going to set the record straight on dietary habits and even provide some tips as we approach this holiday season. So please welcome Jackie Topol. Jackie, welcome to The Backstory. Thank you so much for having me today. So before we get into the topic about mindful eating during this holiday season, I was reading about you on the internet and I noticed one of your certifications is a LEAP therapist, L-E-A-P, which stands for Lifestyle Eating and Performance. And tell us a little bit about LEAP. You know, what I, what I read, and correct me if I'm wrong, deals with food sensitivities and things that we can eat uh, affect our immunity and our inflammation. But I want to hear from you. What is LEAP and how do you implement this in your practice and talking with patients? I've been using the mediator release test, which is the test that looks at food sensitivities for several years now. And I've had great results with using it with patients who have inflammatory conditions like rheumatoid arthritis and migraines. And what the mediator release test does, it looks at how our our immune system responds to many different foods and food chemicals. So it's, it's actually 170 food and food chemicals. So it's quite a comprehensive panel. And it shows us which foods are problematic. The diet that we plan based on someone's results is what we call LEAP or lifestyle eating and performance because it's essentially a custom anti-inflammatory diet. So in the first phase of LEAP, we include foods that are not reactive or minimally reactive, and this helps bring inflammation down very quickly. Then we slowly expand the person's diet. And what I've found over the years is that, yes, MRT does identify some foods that are not totally surprising, things like dairy and gluten, which many people have issues with, but it also captures some foods that you would never guess would be a problem. And most people aren't able to figure this out on their own because food sensitivities can be delayed up to 72 hours. So they're very hard to pinpoint, unlike a food allergy, which is an immediate reaction. I don't typically start with MRT for all patients. I I really use it when other diet interventions have not helped. We see a lot of patients, especially at Cornell and our spine center and pain clinics, And after undergoing so many interventions like physical therapy, maybe I put them on an anti-inflammatory like Motrin, Aleve, or Advil. Mm -hmm. And they still present with, maybe it's not a rheumatologic condition, but what I perceive as inflammation in the body. Their skin is sensitive. Their joints are sensitive. I mean, my understanding of inflammatory diet is like what you said, cut out the sugar, cut out gluten, cut out carbs and dairy. And that's my answer. But it's, it's fascinating that there's actually a science behind it and things that you can actually test for. What are some things that we wouldn't expect to produce inflammation in the body that you have found through your mediator release test? Well, you know, it's completely individualized. I have seen people come back reactive to garlic and sweet potato. Things that you would never really imagine would be a problem. 
but then there's also like things that are not so surprising, like like I mentioned, the, the gluten and dairy, but also other things that are commonly found in our food system, like soy and corn. So those things aren't as surprising to me. But, you know, some of these foods that are totally healthy can be an issue for somebody. And, and that's what's, you know, really helpful about doing MRT, because you would really never guess it otherwise. In addition to cutting things out of your diet that could promote inflammation or even affect your immunity, are there things that you can take that are anti-inflammatory? You know, one of the things that we cook a lot with, especially in Indian food, is uh, curcumin or turmeric. And I'm a big believer in it. I I take a supplement. I recommend that to my patients. But are there kind of anti-inflammatory supplements or anti-inflammatory diets that you recommend and things that you offer to your patients? In general, an anti-inflammatory diet is basically a diet that is rich in fruits and vegetables and whole grains and omega-3 fatty acids and very low in the refined starches, sugars, saturated fat, and trans fat because those things tend to rev up inflammation. So if we eat more of the healthy foods that I, I previously mentioned, that can really bring inflammation down. And essentially, that's really a plant-based diet. So plenty of antioxidant-rich foods like colorful fruits and vegetables, whole grains, legumes, nuts, seeds, herbs, and spices. And like you said, turmeric is great, and ginger and garlic all have anti-inflammatory compounds. Yeah, I mean, most of the food that we cook with are rich in those things, garlic, ginger, turmeric. So I think I would expect Indians to have less inflammation than the general public, but we still suffer from, you know, diabetes and heart disease and a lot of these kind of pro-inflammatory conditions. Might be the other things that are in the person's diet that are causing inflammation to be higher. I want to talk about, as we approach the holiday season, Thanksgiving and Christmas and the holidays in December, you know, a lot of us get excited. I personally get excited because I feel like I have a license to eat whatever I want. I can indulge. In my mind, I've worked hard all year, and this is my chance. I'm going to stuff my face and forget all my good habits that I've been practicing all year and just do what I want. And we call this emotional eating. So how do you, when a patient comes to you who kind of, if, if suffers is the right word, suffers from emotional eating, how do you talk about that and discuss strategies to prevent that from happening, especially during the holidays? I think Thanksgiving and the holidays lead a lot of people to feel that they should treat themselves. And surely we've been under much more stress than usual this past year, so we really feel like we deserve it. You know, there's also special foods at the table that we may not usually eat at other times of the year, so we really look forward to them. So feeling that way that we should, you know, treat ourselves and that we deserve it, it's totally understandable. But what I'd encourage you or anyone else that's listening to do is really to be mindful. And that means, first of all, just using all of our senses to fully savor what we're eating. So not just tasting our food, but also appreciating its color, its texture, its smell. And by doing this, it really naturally slows us down. The other important thing is to stay in tune with how full we're getting throughout the meal. So halfway through the meal, do a little check-in and see how you're feeling. Maybe you need to slow down. Maybe you're already pretty full. I actually tell a lot of my patients that they should actually stand up halfway through the meal because some people actually really can't feel how full their stomach is 
scanning. So just standing up briefly can help you really assess that better. So doing that check-in can really help control our portion sizes. So we're eating just enough to keep us full and satisfied without overdoing it. And then lastly, I'd say, be kind to yourself. If you're working towards a health goal and this meal is more indulgent than you typically have, don't beat yourself up over it. It's, it's really just one meal and tomorrow's a, a new day. No, I think, you know, a lot of the stuff that you're saying, I don't practice. I rarely stand when I eat. I don't check in and savor all of the food with my senses. I grab a plate of food and I sit in front of the couch, turn on football, and that's my holiday. But uh, I'm going to try my best to take what you're saying into account this year. And, and, and despite it being just one meal or a couple of meals over the holidays, you know, I was researching on average, Americans gain weight about two to four pounds during the holidays, which may not sound like a lot. But when you put it in the perspective of what I deal with, like spine pain and joint pain, every pound of weight extra is about 10 pounds on your spine and five to seven pounds on your joints. So even a small weight gain, such as two to four pounds, could have meaningful impacts on your joints. So I think what you're saying is, is especially helpful in being mindful of how we eat, despite it just being a few days out of the year. We talk about strategies on going into these big dinners and big get-togethers with our family, but what are some strategies on how to avoid this weight gain? And, and something that comes up is eating breakfast. Is, eating, is breakfast really the most important meal of the day, and how can we use this strategy to prevent overeating at these dinners? Breakfast is truly one of the most important meals. First of all, our metabolism is most efficient in the morning, so it's really a good idea to have breakfast. You're literally putting gas in your tank for the rest of the day. And if you skip breakfast, you're going to be much more hungry by the time dinner rolls around. And even if you've had lunch, you're still going to be hungry by the time dinner rolls around, and you're going to be likely to eat more. So you're best off having a balanced breakfast and a normal-sized lunch every day, but especially when you're going to have a big Thanksgiving meal. So don't skip meals thinking you'll save the calories for later. It just doesn't quite work that way. How does this affect those of us that might practice intermittent fasting, where we don't eat mm -hmm. until lunch or even dinner and we fast throughout the morning? Is that a good strategy or should we be maybe not eating dinner if our metabolism is best in the morning? That's a great question. So, you know, for intermittent fasting, that does work well for some people. But, you know, even for people who do intermittent fasting, the latest they might be having their first meal might be 10 or 11, maybe at the very latest. The real reason why intermittent fasting works so well is really because you're cutting off eating late at night. And that's when our metabolism is very, very slow. And also we know that eating late at night close to bedtime can actually impact our sleep. And if we have poor sleep, that also can affect our metabolism. So really the, the reason why intermittent fasting is so efficient for helping people lose weight is really more so because it curbs the night eating more than anything, really. I will say that for some people, intermittent fasting doesn't really work because they really do need to eat an earlier breakfast. and they tend to feel very sluggish. They don't have something in the morning. So it can work for some people, but I don't think it works for everyone. You know, holiday eating is about getting together with friends and families and 
Whether we can get together this year will be tough just due to what's going on in society with the pandemic. So it might turn into a Friendsgiving where we're doing a potluck-esque type of meal. And a lot of times the centerpiece might be a turkey or a ham. And I'll be the first to admit, we often neglect our whole food plant-based dishes. So can you give us some ideas on bringing healthier versions of the foods that we typically like to eat during the holiday season? So you can certainly lighten up dishes just by using less oil or cream or butter or sugar, which add a lot of extra calories to dishes. But you can also just incorporate more vegetables into your dishes, such as adding cauliflower into your mashed potatoes or using whole grain bread and vegetables in traditional stuffing or adding butternut squash puree into your mac and cheese. And you can also just put out simply prepared vegetables like a colorful salad or roasted broccoli just to encourage more plant-based eating. And that will kind of curve maybe some of the portion sizes of, of other more caloric dishes. You know, speaking of cauliflower, have you seen kind of a, you know, when I was growing up, we didn't eat cauliflower. That was just not something that was made a lot in my house. But lately, you know, my wife makes a fantastic cauliflower mac and cheese. We started to do cauliflower pizza. Have you noticed that we're using cauliflower mm-hmm. a lot more than typically? Oh, definitely. It's definitely a big trend. You know, a few years ago it was kale, but now cauliflower is everywhere. I'm seeing it in everything. <laughs> Such a healthy food. Absolutely. And what's frustrating is, you know, you can get cauliflower pizza at most of these pizza places now, but they're like two times the price of a regular dough-based pizza, which it's frustrating because eating healthier does come with a price at times, it seems. Yeah, sometimes it does. You know, I think restaurants can sometimes take advantage of that a little bit or different food products. And and actually, I want to mention that though a lot of food companies are putting in some healthier things like cauliflower into their products, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're healthier just because something has dehydrated cauliflower powder in the chips all of a sudden. It doesn't necessarily make them healthier. So foods can certainly have a health halo around them. So it's really important that you, you know, read the ingredients of a food product and also look at the nutrition facts panel because, you know, even like with some cauliflower pizzas, they might be using a lot of cheese in the crust actually to help bind it. And that might make it, you know, quite high in calories and fat. I, I totally agree with you. I am I'm guilty of that. If you if you make, to ask me to make you a cauliflower crust, it will be filled with sometimes breadcrumbs and cheese because <laughs> that's my balance. All right, so I'm going to I'm going to disclose my holiday game plan and I don't want the listeners or my patients who are listening to judge me when they see me in the clinic. But just like any sporting event or giving a lecture to a group of of physicians at a conference, I come in with a game plan. So when it comes to eating, my plan is I grab the biggest plate on the table, which is usually like a 12 inch dinner plate. I pile it with everything except vegetables, turkey, gravy, mashed potatoes, stuffing. And then I sit in front of the couch and I watch with what football, maybe not this year, but that's my plan. So without being too harsh on me, is this a good strategy? And if not, what's a better way that I should consume my food during the holiday season? Well, it's great you're going in with the game plan. Game plan is definitely key to staying on track and not overdoing it. But, you know, first, you can definitely move towards a smaller size plate. So like a nine-inch plate, salad plate can help you have much smaller portions, which is good. And also just not eating in front of the TV, because when you're eating in front of the TV or you're on your phone or you're on your computer, really distracts us. And 
it's very difficult to really stay in tune with how full we're feeling. The other thing, as far as like an overall game plan would be, I would say, you know, first reflect on the foods that you're really looking forward to having and plan to have those, but maybe in smaller portions. You can plan what other things you might have that could balance your plate out too. So for example, I encourage people I work with to fill up half their plate with vegetables. So this allows them to still have some more indulgent foods that they like, like mac and cheese or candied yams. But since there's less room on the plate, they have a much smaller portion, but they still get to enjoy it. And as far as the order in which to have these things, definitely try to prioritize filling up on the vegetables first because that that helps because there's just so much fiber in them, so it's going to fill you up. Are we counting mashed potatoes as a vegetable in this example? Uh, not so much. That's more of a start. <laughs> that, that was a question for the listeners, not me personally. just want to make sure I ask that question. What about things to stay away from? You know, at, during the holiday season, people bring desserts and pecan pies and pumpkin pies and all the stuff that I like to eat. Are there calorie bombs, things that maybe I shouldn't try this season? Yeah, so some of the um, traditional holiday foods and beverages that are highest in calories are eggnog. That's got 350 calories in one glass. Uh, pigs in a blanket, uh, because people never have one. They usually have maybe five or more. Uh, deep fried turkey, um, because it's just got so much saturated fat. Turducken, which is the chicken and the duck in the turkey. Um, and then for dessert, pecan pie is by far the worst. And, you know, I don't like to say that anything is off limits, but the thing is, is there are, there are alternatives to these things. So, um, you know, you can easily make swaps for them. So instead of having the pecan pie, you have the pumpkin pie, for example. Pumpkin pie is much less, uh, much lower in calories. I can get on board with pumpkin pie over pecan pie. So that's a, that's a fair <laughs> concession I can make this holiday season during my feasting. Um, what about, I mean, you mentioned alcohol. You mentioned eggnog. Let, mm-hmm. let me talk about alcohol a little bit. What about alcohol intake while eating? How does that impact... How much we eat? Do we eat more when we drink or does it kind of fill you up so you eat less? Mm -hmm. Um, Typically, people do tend to eat a little bit more um, because, you know, they're they're not as present necessarily. And so they may not really feel how full they're getting. Um, And you can also get really dehydrated, too, which can cause you to drink more. Um, So. You know, as a health professional, of course, I recommend limiting alcohol intake, but, you know, during the holidays, it's maybe inevitable. (laughs) So, um, you know, just really the best thing to do is to avoid the sugary cocktails um, and the mixers because that's really where all the calories are. So something like a glass of champagne or wine or even um, 12 ounces of a light beer, they're all about 100 calories. So those are sensible choices. But, but stay away from the margarita mix and things like that. That could be packed with sugar. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> you know, one, one right, thing. The white Russian. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's dairy and sugar. Just two, two strikes. Yeah. Uh, one thing that keeps coming up in my conversation with you is this concept about mindful eating. And we, we talk a lot about mindfulness during this podcast, uh, especially with mental health. Tell me a little bit about mindful eating. I know you mentioned some strategies and some things to consider 
but how can we employ this and implement this in our day-to-day life? Yeah. So, you know, the thing is to really slow down and to really savor your food and, and use your senses. Like I talked about before, um, and really just concentrate on spending quality time with your family and thinking about what you're really thankful for as opposed to kind of getting wrapped up in the foods on the table. And slowing down is really important too because we tend to eat really fast and it takes our brain 20 minutes to get the message that it's full from our stomach. So if we're eating in less time than that, we may eat more because we need to, uh, because our brain just didn't get the signal from our stomach that we've had enough. Um, another way to bring mindfulness to your meal is to maybe have a cup of tea or maybe pop a mint in your mouth just to signal the end of the meal, which can prevent you from being tempted to go back for seconds. Yeah, I am, as I'm speaking with you, I'm kind of envisioning how I'm going to attack my next holiday season. And I think I have a plan. Plan one, grab the small plate and fill it 50% with veggies, colorful veggies. Yeah. And... 50% of the other plate, I can eat whatever I want. You said that, right? Eat whatever I want. <laughs> With some uh, mindfulness, but yes, like it, you should, you know, enjoy the foods that you are really looking forward to having. You know, the, the concept of slowing down, you know, as a, as a physician and during medical school and residency training, meals were not about being mindful. I mean, you grabbed a candy mm-hmm. bar or anything the moment you had a chance, the moment you weren't covering something on the wards and, that just transferred into my day-to-day life. I mean, I eat very fast at the dinner table. Yeah. I will finish my plate in a few minutes and then I'll sit there. And my wife is always mm-hmm. like, why are you eating so fast? And I'm in my head, it's, this is what I'm, I've been accustomed to doing. It just comes with yeah. training. So I need to really mm-hmm. be thoughtful and slow, slow that process down. Yeah. So you can also, you know, put your fork down between bites. That will also help you slow down and also just, chew more too. That's another thing. Um, Americans in general do not chew efficiently. Um, You should be chewing a lot to the point that the food is really, really, really broken down. It's also better for your digestion too when you do that. Um, But because we're just kind of, you know, chowing down and getting through the meal super fast, we're really not breaking down our food super well. And that's, you know, what causes us to to eat so fast and, and for some people to have indigestion too. I'm going to make sure I tell my one-year-old son this when I come home today. I mean, yesterday I fed him (laughs) macaroni and cheese, and he was just swallowing it without taking one bite. So Mm. I'll make sure to change his habits when I get home. So you, you know, prior to opening up your practice, um, which our listeners can visit at JackieTopol.com, you you were here with us at at New York Presbyterian Wall Cornell for many, many years. So tell me a little bit about what kind of work you were doing with us here and what are some of the services that you offer out in the private sector? Sure. So I did my training at NYP and then I uh, worked as a clinical dietitian at Cornell. Um, So I was inpatient for a number of years. I worked with cardiology and oncology patients for about four and a half years. And then I moved into um, Cornell's new integrative health and well-being center and I was their dietitian for about three years and worked with all kinds of patients. We saw a lot of people who had autoimmune conditions, um, a lot of uh, digestive issues as well. 
and everything in between. And uh, it was wonderful. And I, I, I loved working at Cornell and NYP. And, um, you know, I consider it my home because that's really where I started my career and where I got my training, too. And now I'm in private practice. I see all my patients virtually now um, because of COVID. Uh, but it's great. I, I get to work with patients from all over. And um, I mainly work with people who have prediabetes and diabetes, but I also see patients who have uh, gut issues as well. Certainly the work that you're doing here at the hospital reminds me of this phrase that we all talk a lot about, and I've written newsletters on, that food is medicine. And if we aren't really thoughtful about the substance we put in our bodies, we're really not going to have great positive health outcomes. Uh, so I, I love mm -hmm. the work that you're doing, and I'm going to be sure to implement a lot of those strategies you mentioned today on how I approach food and how I eat during this holiday season. Any, any closing thoughts or tips for our listeners on food and diet in general and kind of how to be more thoughtful about this process? Yeah, I think it's just all about getting more tuned into how you're really feeling um, when it comes to eating and, and just overall how we're feeling too. I think so many people are very, very disconnected and especially um, for our New York listeners, um, people have very high stress jobs and are always moving at lightning speed and it can be difficult to really think about how you're truly feeling and um, I think it's important to really get more in touch with that and you know you can do that working with a dietitian certainly when it comes to you know the nutrition perspective but certainly you know a therapist as well um, I just think in general we're, we're quite disconnected from how we're really feeling and there's so much we can do there. Yeah, you, you nail it on the head with when it comes to stress, you know, especially living in Manhattan and New York, stress can lead to inflammation, inflammation can lead to stress, food obviously mm -hmm. has a role in that based on what you did, talked about with the mediator release test. Uh, so a lot of things to think about. If uh, you're out there listening, and you have thoughts about your diet, and you think maybe you need to make a change. Um, please speak with Jackie Topol, you can visit her at her website at Jackie Topol, J-A-C-K-I-E. T-O-P-O-L.com. Jackie, it was a pleasure. Uh, you know, we've ever, never actually met in person, just virtually, probably as a result of this pandemic. But hopefully, once uh, this is behind us, I would love to share and collaborate on patient care with you. That would be great, and I'd love that. And thank right. you so much for having me today. Jackie, it's a pleasure. Thank you, and uh, we'll chat again. Happy holidays, everyone. Thank you. Thanks for listening to The Backstory. Please subscribe rate the podcast and review the backstory on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Play Music. And feel free to share this podcast on social media or even your own website or blog. This podcast is for general information purposes only. It does not constitute the practice of medicine, including the giving of medical advice. No doctor-patient relationship is formed. The use of this information is at the user's own risk. The content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for medical advice. To learn more about Dr. Singh and his clinical research, please follow him on social media. You can also sign up for his newsletter by going to www.rickysinghmd.com. That's R-I-C-K-Y-S-I-N-G-H-M-D.com.